Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candice. Jane, my fiancé Stuart loves to watch war movies, and if they're in black and white, mm-hmm. even better. Yeah. He's crazy about them. And some of my most favorite ones, I don't know the titles as well as he does, but the ones that are, you know, really seemingly authentic, mm-hmm. but then Japanese soldiers are speaking in English, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I love subtitles about as much as the next guy, so it, it doesn't frustrate me too much that mm-hmm. I have to listen to Japanese soldiers speak in English, but I think that for the sake of authenticity, subtitles would have been better. That's true. And actually, it's funny you should mention movies, because the topic we're going to talk about today, uh, I have a lot of favorite movies that are based around this sort of situation. Uh, if you've ever seen like Father Goose or Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, also old movies, uh, they're really interesting because they're set in the Pacific on islands uh, when um, there are American troops are on the Pacific and they're fighting Japanese in these very... Um, uh, obscure and remote islands in the Pacific, and they have no connection to anywhere around them. I can imagine it would be like being on a totally different universe, yeah, or a plane of existence, really, because you're you're in the jungle, so you feel almost like you're reduced to a, a different state of human being at that point. I mean, right. you're living off the land, you're you know having to forage for food, you're having to watch out for mm-hmm. for all the wild animals. It wouldn't even be like being part of society. Yeah, it's interesting. And what we're talking about is a situation that happened in World War II. The U.S. was fighting against the Japanese. And as you know, the U.S. is very far from Japan. And um, in order to uh, stage bombings or, like, have a base for which to for which to um, fight the Japanese, the Americans needed to get control of, of the huge number of, um, of islands in the Pacific. And so they needed to, one by one, take over these islands. And the Japanese knew that this was what they were doing, and so they fought fiercely to keep these islands and keep the U.S. off them. Specifically, we're talking about places like Guam and and Midway and Mm -hmm. the Philippines. And the Japanese strategy was put as many soldiers on these islands as conceivably possible to keep the Allies off. Because the problem was that the Japanese couldn't compete with the amount of weaponry that the American forces had. That's right. The American and the Allies in general were advancing much faster. And so... uh, one of the Japanese uh, uh, commanders came up with the idea, well, we have all of these old fighter planes that are really out of date. We don't really have the resources right now to update them. What if we made them into human bombs? So the, in essence, the mm-hmm. kamikaze pilot was created. That's right. And their mission was quite simple. Fly a plane with these bombs loaded on them into an Allied ship and complete a suicide mission, but also take out a vast number of allies. That's right. And it's hard to understand. I mean, we do have the modern equivalent today of, of suicide bombers, but in Japan, um, the leaders who wanted to convince their soldiers of this had a very good tool to convince them to do this. And this was this idea of Bushido, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and it was a code. It's a pretty interesting uh, code that was developed originally in like the Middle Ages and uh, associated with samurai fighters and um, or warriors, I should say. And the code is means the way of the warrior, and uh, it stressed military skill. And but also um, aside from military skill, just like a way of life, even modest living, honesty, especially honor itself. Right, and this was incredibly important to creating an atmosphere of peace. 
throughout Japan. Mm-hmm. But then by around the 18th century, Japan was, in essence, a peaceful country, and the samurai didn't have a lot more to do. And so the code still very much existed in people's minds as yeah. a legacy of Japan, but it wasn't really being put to use. And so when the idea came up that a kamikaze pilot could you know, fulfill this this code and, and have Bushido and this mm-hmm. honor bestowed upon him for his country... People jumped at the chance. That's right. And a special part of this was um, to express loyalty and just like unflinching sacrifice. And this was a key point here because in death, basically, you get honor in, in that in that culture. Uh, death can actually make up for, for disgrace in life. Right. And I think if you look at the stats, only about 5% of of these soldiers just surrendered to mm-hmm. allied forces during the war. That's how incredibly important honor is. That's right. And like like we said movies, like I've seen plenty of POW movies full of Americans and British and they all they were people who surrendered to the Axis forces, but the Japanese were not like that. You know, we didn't have camps and camps of, of POW um Japanese because they would rather die than surrender. Exactly. And I think that as we'll see when we talk about some of these kamikaze pilots in just a minute, we'll see that some of them would have favored death death over the disgrace and shame of living and knowing that they let their country down. That's right. So we know that they started using these kamikaze pilots, and we know that the Pacific Islands were incredibly important strategically. And here's where the story gets really interesting. So all of these different Japanese soldiers who are staged in these Pacific Islands, they're upholding the same code that the Kamikaze pilots would, this code of Bushido in, mm-hmm. in honor. So they go into the very dense Pacific jungles, and they stay there, and they wait. And when a battle comes, they fight it. When a skirmish breaks out, they participate, but otherwise they're on their own, living in the jungle. That's right, and a lot of them were advised to, you know, hold out, basically, and um, and stay alive until reinforcements come. And that's where we get the name for these people. They were called holdouts, mm-hmm. or stragglers. And yeah. they were called stragglers because when the war ended and Japan surrendered, they didn't get the memo. That's right, and... Um, when the Allies took over an island, the Japanese knew that the U.S. was known for, for just scouring the island and, and taking out the Japanese, whether, you know, killing them or, or, or just capturing them, which, of course, would be a disgrace to them. Um, and so they were very skeptical when they were told to come out. Even if when they were told the war was over, the, the Allies were telling the truth and Japanese were understandably skeptical. Right, precisely. And so many of them continued to stay in mm-hmm. their Pacific Island strongholds, and they would survive off the land. There That's was, right. There was one soldier who was on an island near Russia, and he stayed there until 1958. And there was another group that actually included a woman that made their own little society. They made their own clothes. They hunted down food. They foraged. They even made wine out of distilled coconut juice. Wow. If you can imagine and that. One sad story that came out of this was... Um, this group in seclusion, I think this was a separate group from the one you just mentioned, but um, one straggler came out and emerged only because his group had turned to cannibalism. And so you can see how incredibly desperate and dire these situations were. Again, all for honor and upholding Bushido. And I think that, without argument, the two most famous stragglers are Anoda and Yokoi, and they didn't come out until 1974 and 1972, respectively. That, that meant 28 and 30 years holding out, either thinking the war was was not over or whatever, just you know, stuck in their own their own world. And I wonder if they lost concept of time. I mean, if you were in yeah, a jungle perhaps. with no other sense of communicating with people, I mean, yeah, at first you would you would count the sunrises and the sunsets, and you would know how many days had passed. But after that many years, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wonder. 
surrender. And not only that, to be on the defensive the entire time, to still be in a warlike mindset, knowing that yeah. any moment the enemy could spring upon you. And, and not just that, but you know, on the other side, you're looking over your shoulder for a wild animal does that to get you too. Yeah. And so... At this point, there were lots of missions conducted to get the holdouts out of the jungle. That's right. And when Yokai, he was the first one who really came out um, out of these two men, uh, he was on Guam, the island of Guam, and for 28 years. And it, when he did come out, it was revealed that he did actually know the war was over. But because of the Japanese sense of pride and, sh- and the idea of shame, he was pretty ashamed to go home alive when he when he went over there to fight, and so many of his comrades died. Exactly, and I believe a, a direct quote from him was, I am ashamed I have returned alive. That's right, and he said, um, like, as a soldier, I was taught to prefer death to the disgrace of getting captured alive. Right, and so we're talking about people who've been informed every way you know, their troops, our troops knew how. We're talking about notes being dropped from helicopters into mm-hmm. the jungle, messages being blared through loudspeakers, you know, come out, the war is over. And Anoda, who held out until 1974, he came back as a national hero, in yeah. essence. His is a really interesting story, I think. He was on the island of Lubang, and, um, which is only 74 square miles, um, and he was there for 30 years, like we said. Um, and he was one of those ordered to hold there until reinforcements arrived. And he also believed that the war was still going on. Like you said, even despite these leaflets, he thought they were tricks. They were propaganda to get him to come out. Um, and it wasn't. And uh, so he didn't know the, the war was over. And he believed the Allies would brutally kill him um, if he did. So he didn't want to take his chances. And he actually, he wasn't the only one on the island for much of that time who, like him. He was uh, a, a part of a four-man band of stragglers as well. And um, <clears throat> they eventually broke up. But uh, by 1950, the first member um, gave himself up. And when he did find out, hey, the war's over, he tried to, to warn the other three guys. They didn't believe him, um, even after the leaflets were sent. And, uh, you know, they were sending broadcasts through speakers into the jungle. They still didn't believe them. Um, the three men were convinced it was a lie, basically, and so they were still fighting. And I find that really interesting, that they, they still had ammo, ammo on them. They were being guerrilla fighters, basically, and they were literally continuing the war. And so when he came home, his general attitude upon finding out that not only had Japan surrendered in the war, but even the section of the military to which he had belonged, that section had been disbanded. I mean, he had... He yeah. was a decorated hero, but he belonged to no military. And mm-hmm. I think his attitude was one of, well, what's worth living for? You know, this concept that I've spent the last however many years of my life upholding, it no longer exists in essence. That's true. And it's interesting. Like, there are stories like when he comes back, uh, it was a huge story, obviously. And uh, when he met his parents, it was interesting to me that his parents were still alive. And I thought to myself, well, why didn't they go to the island if they knew he was there? And I looked into it. It's because he was actually officially declared dead in 1959. They really thought he was dead. And his parents did actually go there for a time um, and send these leaflets. But because of minor typos, Onada thought, oh, it's a, it's a clue. They're, they're being forced to do this. And they put in these typos to warn me not to actually believe it. And... Um, also, in so they thought he was dead by 59, but then by 72, um, evidence showed that he was alive, and one other of his bandmates were alive as well, um, and he he was actually killed. The other the other person in his group was killed in a skirmish with the police because he was still fighting the war, um, and so search parties went out uh, for Anada and. They actually left gifts for him at, at one point, and Anad actually left a thank you note for the oh, gifts, gosh. and so they knew for sure he's alive. Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And uh, so finally, in 1974, it was a student by the name of Suzuki who um, who sought Onada out to convince him to come out of hiding. And so he found him, eventually did find him, and still Onada was like, no, I'm not coming, I'm staying where I am, and I, I am going to continue to until someone, uh, my commanding officer, orders me not to. So Suzuki did just that. He found uh, Onada's old uh, commanding officer, I think his name is Tanaguchi, he was like a bookkeeper at the time, I think. And so he convinced him to go over to Onada and say, and deliver a formal address saying, lay down your arms, blah, blah, blah. And Onada was still reluctant, but he finally did go back to Japan. It sounds like a work of fiction. I know. I think this would make a better movie than uh, Castaway. <laughs> well, we're going to get yeah. on that right now. And I, I think Jane's going to direct because she's obviously very well versed. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. So she's quite a movie buff. Any any movie questions or recommendations you want from her, she's, she's happy to do that too. <laughs> As we are always to answer your questions about history or maybe even to fulfill requests for a certain topic you'd like to hear on one of our podcasts and in the interim be sure to learn more about the Japanese soldiers and kamikaze pilots and and other concepts of samurai warriors all on HowStuffWorks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com (laughs) 